Romans 12.1. The Apostle Paul writing this letter to the church in the city of Rome. And he had so much to say to them that God had put in his mouth and was writing through his pen. And this is what he says here in what we call the 12th chapter. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Just right off the bat, these verses have a lot to say to us on a lot of different levels. Uh, But tonight specifically, let's together look at the way Paul applies these truths practically. I just want to learn about what verses 1 and 2 mean by seeing what the rest of the chapter tells us about them. And just right off the bat, we can look at what uh, the verses that come next say to us. Look at verse 3. For I say, Paul writes, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. I, I find often that when I read a verse like this, my first instinct can be to think something like, not me, right? Uh, I don't think of myself more highly than I ought to think. You know, I don't know. Maybe some of you are more instantly humble than that. But, but one of the most helpful ways to learn from the Bible that I've discovered is to say to myself, since this is in the Bible, then there must be a real danger of thinking of myself more highly than I should. And since this is what Paul writes right after he writes, don't be conformed to this world, there must be a pressure from the world that can make us think about ourselves more highly than we should. I'm going to connect those two verses, right? That must be what's, what's out there. There must be an energy from the culture around us that will push us towards pride. I'm not saying it's, I would have no pride if it wasn't for the culture, but I'm saying whatever else is in me, it must be helped along by what Paul is asking us, telling us to not be conformed to in verse 2. And based on verse 4, one thing that pride could do to us is to make us have a bad reaction to the kinds of differences we run into in the body of Christ. Evidently, we could begin to misunderstand or even resent the diversity in the body of Christ, and that could make us ignore our need to really be a living part of it. And Paul's addressing that here in verse 4, you see. Verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, that's a biological um, illustration. We don't usually talk about our members, but it's an old way of talking about arms, fingers, right? Nose, eyes. As we, even as humans, have one members in many body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ. And he goes from the metaphor of the physical body to the reality of the church. And individually members of one another. Now why is this written, verse 4 and 5? Again, it must be because we need to be reminded about it or we could forget. It's so helpful to me to just 
constantly take myself through that because it, it makes me stop and actually look at the verses and not just assume I have it down, right? The world will constantly exert a pressure on us to not see ourselves as true members of the body of Christ or to not see others as members of the body. If we see ourselves as disconnected, we'll pull away, right? We'll stop prioritizing, gathering together. We'll not contribute our giftings to the whole, as he's going to say. If we see others as not part of the body, we'll be harsh and critical of them. And we'll do it in ways that could drive them away. Right? In either case in that situation, when we read verses like verse 4 and 5, it's wise to ask ourselves, what would make it hard for me to see things the way verses 4 and 5 say they, they really are? What about the body of Christ could make me feel like I should pull away? And some of those answers are just matters of preference, right? It's things that get under my skin particularly. might not get under your skin at all. What about myself would make me feel like I'm not part of the body of Christ? What about someone else could make me feel like I needed to pressure them to change or else they're failing to really be part of the body of Christ? Right? Is there any issue or circumstance that you feel so strongly about that you're willing to press on another Christian whether they want you to or not? Now, some of you know your Bibles really well, and there's a little alarm bell going off in your head. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm with you. There are things that are so central to the gospel that they risk ruining a fellowship's ability to be a church. You, you might have in your mind the example of Paul and Peter. Paul took Peter to task over Peter's refusal to eat with Gentile Christians. Interestingly enough, it was Peter's blatant refusal to acknowledge unity in the church. And Paul took him to task. And when something really is at the heart of our unity and public witness, then there are times when we need to confront each other if it comes to that, totally. So you might be right in doing so. And I'm sure some of you have, maybe a lot of us, have had one or two experiences like that. But if the the issue, if the thing is not actually central, then you're running the risk of being out of God's will because you're out of joint with the body of Christ to really, to really press on the issue that way. You know, whether it's someone's neglecting gathering in oneness together, not really being with each other, or, or someone's attacking of someone else's gathering in oneness, any of those things can work against God's work here. The renewed mind in Christ sees that the diversity in the membership of the body is God's design. It's not something to be aggravated at, but something that creates exactly the kind of unity, evidently, that best witnesses to Christ. What does it look like to get on board with this unity of the body because our minds have been renewed? You could say, what is the opposite of having our minds conform to this world actually look like, like practically as we work it out? Well, it looks like verse 6 on down in the chapter. We get a practical picture of what the renewed mind operating in the, with the unity of the body of Christ in the center actually looks like in action. Verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy... Let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, verse 8. He who exhorts in exhortation, right? Strong encouragement, really just rallying the troops, helping people know that it's going to be worth it to press on. I love people that have that gift, right? He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. 
when our minds are being renewed, part of what gets transformed is how we relate to the church. Instead of staying distant from the gathering of God's people, you know, especially the, the actual group of people we're connected to, our, you know, we say things like our local church, instead of being distant from those people, we're going to become so connected to the family that our giftings can be used in all kinds of practical ways. I think that's the practical upshot of these verses here. The world wants to push us in a totally different direction. In the world's way of thinking, it really isn't that important if we're connected to the church in any meaningful way. The world thinks that, you know, it won't really matter or change things if I really dive into relationships with other believers or maybe just, you know, it's no use. You think of the things, the little phrases that might stick in our mind. Or that the church doesn't need us. Or maybe, maybe the world just makes us not care, right? Because we're too busy or maybe mad at the church we're embarrassed of other Christians or something like that. All those things kind of, kind of float around out there, right? But all those pressures are simply pressures to conform our lives to the life of the world because the world is mad at the church and indifferent to the church and hurt by the call to repent and embarrassed that the church even exists within its own borders. That's how the world feels about the church. But God wants to transform us into people who love the church and who love it in a certain way. Look, look at verse 9. Great verse, right? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. The renewed mind understands that true love has to love without hypocrisy. And according to this verse, the way to love without hypocrisy is to truly abhor, right? A lot of you know that's a strong word for for hate. Truly abhor what is evil. And truly cling to what is good. Another strong word. That's how I love without hypocrisy. Verse 9. The world pressures us to think about love differently, doesn't it? The world wants us to conform to another way of seeing love. It wants us to think that love doesn't care about what God calls good and evil. I mean, the world is... The world's always all hyped up about whatever evil is currently out of style you know, out of style at the moment, right? The world always has a couple things that really are evil that it just hates. Whatever's really out of style. And some things that the world hates should be hated. They really are sometimes, you know, almost every culture has a couple things that line up with scriptures and it's like, that's bad. And a believer would be like, yes, that is bad. That's totally bad. But like in America in 2020, what about slaughtering babies and selling their body parts for profit? Does the world hate that? Or does it just hate the things that the beautiful people say they hate? Right? I can say that because none of us here fall. Anyway. It's easy to hate on those beautiful people. Just joking. A couple of you are like, hey, sorry. We'll acknowledge your presence among us. The world's version of love is willing to tolerate or even celebrate all kinds of hypocrisy and evil, right? Sometimes you see a really powerful, lauded person. We could throw some names out here. And then all of a sudden it flips. Now everyone hates them. Isn't it weird? And you find out what they were like and what they were doing. And you think, 
All those people knew what they were doing and they were giving them awards and money just last month. But no one asked normal people like us, right? But you see it. And the world says that what truly loving people hate most, the world says that what what people who really understand love hate the most is people who insist on calling good, good, and evil, evil, right? The world's love hates the good of making those kinds of distinctions. And that's one reason why it does not understand what love is. It doesn't. And the Bible calls that hypocrisy. That's the powerful logic there in verse 9. Hypocrisy is much deeper than just having some private sin and pretending to be holy. That's a kind of hypocrisy. But the world is a hypocrite because it loves evil things that kill people. And then it hates Christians who love the good things that let people live forever. And that's the truth. The world often clings to what is evil and abhors what is good. And Romans 12.9 says, that's hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Look at verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. So again, if I'm turning away from from the way the world thinks and I'm having my mind transformed, I'm going re- to read verse 10 and I realize the world wants to shape our minds so that we share its indifference or hostility to the body of Christ, but the renewed mind will stir up our feelings to love other Christians. The renewed mind is going to lead me to be kindly affectionate, it says, to other believers, to love them with brotherly affection, your Bible might say. Instead of getting angry at believers who are different than us, according to this, We'll actually give them preference. We'll honor them, it says. That's what a transformed life from a renewed mind will lead us to feel and do towards the church. And, you know, maybe you like a certain kind of diversity in the church. But here's a great question for all of us to ask ourselves. What kind of Christians drive me crazy? You know, maybe it's, you know those young, arrogant Christians who can't seem to tell which side of the political spectrum is totally hostile to Christianity. Right? Or maybe it's the old, angry ones who don't seem to see how their defensive rhetoric is hurting our public witness. Can I go to church with those kinds of people? Can I love them and share life with them? Or do I feel like I need to get away from them? How about Christians who tend to make identity politics more important than identity in Christ? How about Christians who have trouble seeing past their own privilege? Right? Can I enjoy worshiping and serving with people like that? Can I be in one body with them because we hope in Christ and love God and preach the gospel together in this hard world? And actually all four of those categories should probably be addressed, right, and spoken to by mature people. We can all check ourselves. You know, we all need some correction sometimes. And if we find ourselves in some place that dishonors Christ, we all know what that's like. We've all been there. Someone called us out, and we're like, nah. And then 10 minutes later, the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, huh? It's always great when the Holy Spirit says, yeah, huh, to me. If we find ourselves in that kind of place, we just need to change. That's what Romans 12 is all about, right? That's what we're reading. And what loving each other will look like practically is in verse 11 on down. Look at verse 11. Not, great great words again, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, 
serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Here it is. The renewed mind and the transformed life will keep pressing forward and following Jesus, keeping stirred up by the Holy Spirit. Keep a healthy level of passion and engagement. Keep serving. Keep hoping. Keep praying. Keep generously taking care of Christians who need it. Even if the troubled, stressful times make people in the world start to give up all those, on all those kinds of things. Which, which happens, right? And when trouble and difficulty make the culture around us get really edgy, really angry, and everyone starts fighting about everything, those who are being changed into the image of Christ won't follow that path. Look, look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. If I'm like Jesus, I won't curse people who oppose me. I won't curse them on Facebook. I won't curse them at work or on my block. And if they're not actually persecuting me, but they're just arguing with me, or threatening to vote me out of any political influence, or to pack the Supreme Court, or to get me fired, or to indoctrinate my kids, or to change America for good. If that's all it is, I won't curse them. Not if I'm being transformed and having my mind renewed. I'll bless them. Amen. The world curses. The world threatens and fumes and rages. The world posts horrible memes and long tirades. The world would come into this church and stand in the hallways and refuse to lay aside differences and insist on having it out with a brother or sister about some hot issue while we're all just trying to serve the Lord and worship him and enjoy God's, God's presence. Right? The world would bring Facebook into the fellowship but not the renewed man or woman. And we've all caught ourselves walking down that road. Well, some of you are kinder than the rest of us. 95% of us have caught ourselves there, right? And the Holy Spirit's like, whoa. And you're like, but i got to say this. And the Lord's like, no, you don't. Please don't say that. You know, and you're like, but it's such a good point, right? Like, we, all, we all know what that feels like. But that's, that's the way the world thinks. Right? And if we can't bless our brothers and sisters, how are we going to bless the non-believers we know? And if we can't bless non-believers who are just saying harsh words to us, and I'm saying this to myself, how are we going to bless them when they actually start persecuting us? We all know it's getting bad out there. But I don't know if it's happening yet to us like it's happened to so many for the last 2,000 years. This says, bless those who persecute you. There's real weight behind that word written in the Roman Empire. So, you know, I don't know, my friends. I read it and I think, if, if I... If I can't bless them now, 
It's going to be it's going to be harder if this gets rougher. But the words of Jesus can totally transform our minds. How about these words? If you love those who love you, you know these words, right? Don't you love the words of Jesus? What credit is that to you? This is Luke 6. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. That's pretty great, isn't it? The Most High is kind to the unthankful and evil. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? You ever read that verse and be like, what? You'll be sons of the Most High because he's kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. A lot of us know this, but a lot of us also, most of us didn't grow up where the way you would get, say, flour, something to make bread with, is for you know your mom to give you a big basket and say, go to the market and fill this up. And you take it and you say, I want this filled. And the guy throws a bunch in, and then because he's a good guy, he goes, give me that. And he takes it and he starts shaking it. Right? He's going to charge you the same amount as he would have, would have for the full one, but he just he shakes it and it settles down and there's like a quarter left and he puts more in and he shakes that and you're like, oh, it's going to be a good deal. And he fills it to the top and then he, you go to reach for it, he goes, huh. And then he just dumps more on and it's overflowing. And he charges you the one basket price and you're like, you go back to your mom, you're like, that guy that sells the flour, I like that guy. And she goes, yeah, he's a good man. Right? Jesus says, that's who you're going to be. You're going to be the kid with the basket. And the Lord's going to be shaking it together and going, ah, we need more here. Jesus says, you can afford to bless your enemies because you're going to get taken care of. Right? There's a whole way of being there in those words. Jesus is inviting us into a way of facing the world that radically changes things. It was his way. You know it if you've read the stories. Who he was, what he did, what he said. In Romans here, Paul's just really not challenging, channeling. He's channeling those words of Jesus. And he's applying them to our situation. So to the one persecuting us, Paul says, blessing. And to everyone else, spiritual sensitivity. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's great stuff too. The transformed mind isn't dominated by its own thoughts or its own emotions. That's not all that fills it up. It can actually step outside of itself and be moved by what other people are feeling. Just like Jesus. You think of the times when he wept, right? 
funeral of his friends. He was moved with grief for, grief for a parent that had a kid that was in a, in a rough spot. Just like Jesus, the emotions of other people can start to take center stage in our concerns. Not just what I'm thinking about anymore, but what are other people going through? You know, do we have brothers and sisters who are weeping over a lost job or maybe a lost loved one? Do we have neighbors who are rejoicing over you know, a promotion or a new child or something? Where do those kinds of concerns rank when we decide what's important? You know, are we able to step outside of ourselves like this? And the kind of person who's growing in what's said in verse 15 is the kind of person who can actually live out verse 16. Look at verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Another great verse. We, we can't be of the same mind towards each other unless, right, we can't experience verse 16 unless we experience verse 15, unless we are willing to stop making our own thoughts and feelings the most important thing to us. And notice that the word mind here in verse 16 pops up again. It's kind of connecting this to verse 2. You see the word mind in verse 2 and the word mind here? So one of the things that's true about a godly mind is that it's of the same mind, it says here, with other believers. It's learned how to be unified in thought with others. Now, that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have any of our own thoughts, but that our thoughts wouldn't divide us from other believers and ruin our unity and our love for each other, even when the thoughts in our heads are different than the thoughts in their heads. Right? Having the same mind doesn't mean that we never have different thoughts than each other. It's just that we decide in our minds to walk with each other and to make the big important things we all agree on the most important thoughts that we have. Is Jesus Lord? Is he risen from the dead? Is he coming back to fix everything? Does everyone need to get on board with this plan? Those are the most important things. That's what's important. And so when we make those things the things that we care about most and we talk about the most and love the most, then I think we can be totally unified with any other believer, You know, even if we might walk to the polls and vote different ways. I'm not saying voting doesn't matter. Not at all. I'm not saying there's never political issues that impact Christian belief. There's a few big ones, right? Racial oppression, abortion, truths about manhood and womanhood, freedom to speak God's word, things like that. There are important issues that political choices impact, and we do need to discuss those things with each other when it's appropriate, totally. But can I, I just want to suggest that when things are emotionally tight and ratcheted up, it requires truly spiritual people to be able to discuss things like this in ways that are not destructive to the unity of the body of Christ. In other words, we need the renewed mind. We need thoughts that are being conformed to his thoughts. If someone's thoughts are just conformed to Fox News or CNN or or worse, they should take a break from even having those discussions. They're not ready. And actually, verse 16 helps us down that road to learn to be kind uh, and to be that kind of people and I think it gives us some real practical direction for how to do it, right? If you just look at that verse, 
Don't set your mind on high things, right? Don't let pride or things that are beyond you dominate your thoughts. We've all been there. Don't try to avoid people you might be tempted to think are kind of, you know, maybe below you. Wouldn't say it out loud, but... Right? Associate with people who are truly humble and don't think you know best. It's like old school advice from, you know, our grandmother or something. The world is literally the opposite of those three things. The basic flavor of the world right now is to think that I know best about the things that are way beyond me. I mean, like, I know everything Q is doing, you know? (laughs) Really? Right? And to look at anyone who doesn't think the same way with disdain. And that's the opposite of God's way of doing things. And it gets even deeper in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Friends, here it is again. This is an apostle teaching the straight commands of Jesus. Here's Matthew 5. You have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Paul's just, he's just channeling that for, for the Roman church and for us. And so I can check how I'm doing with Romans 12 too by seeing how I'm doing with Romans 12, 18. I think these verses help us understand each other. Am I really living out Romans 12 too? I think the Holy Spirit might say, well, just check Romans 12, 18. How am I doing with Romans 12, 17, and 19? You know, maybe the second half of verse 20, you've all read that, right? I mean, like, is that, a, is that revenge? Do I get to burn his head with coals? <laughs> like, is this like a little outlord? Like, yeah, like... And then burn his head with coals. Okay, cool. Right? Maybe the second half of verse 20 is a little confusing. Uh, is that a good thing? Because he was freezing to death and now I'm warming him up. You read the commentaries, right? A lot of you a lot of you've been there. Like, it doesn't sound good, but culturally was it? Maybe that's a little confusing. But is the first half of the verse confusing? Verse 20. Don't you wish it was a little more confusing? You're like, I don't know. I've got to read a commentary in the first half of verse 20. It's, it's got to be some Greek or Hebrew in there. That, right? Just can't really make it out. I'm not saying these things come easily. We all know what it's like to come to our senses about some issue. Or maybe bigger than an issue. If you walk with Christ, you know at least once in your life what it's like to come to your senses about everything, right? And realize, my thoughts are all wrong. I mean, I think one of the central experiences of getting saved is when you're like, oh no, I'm wrong about everything. You know what I'm talking about? Like a little moment of panic where you're like. And the Holy Spirit says, I know. 
I'm going to clean up your messes. Our thoughts aren't God's thoughts. We know what it's like to realize that. Our ways aren't God's ways. Our ways are just, you know, the way we always assumed everything should be because, well, it's just how I always thought it. It should be. It's what I always heard, right? It's what I always saw everyone doing. That's just how I thought it was, right? But then the words of Christ come to me, and the whole Bible starts speaking to me. And then also when you really, the Lord really moves in your heart, and you start just gulping down the Bible, and you're like, I didn't even like know how to read before this. <laughs> and then you're like, I just read like Jeremiah and Isaiah. It's because God's waking us up, right? The whole Bible starts speaking to us. And we start realizing, oh, I really need to change how I think. And then we realize we have a couple thousand pages of God's thoughts to dive into. You ever look at the page numbers in your Bible? There's a lot of pages in here. But actually, isn't that a really encouraging thought? When you're like, Lord, please say something to me. And Lord's like, I think you saw that there are 2,013 pages in your Bible. That's a long book. So many good words to hear. So many healing, cleansing, illuminating thoughts. God, thank you. Right? I was, I was following the crowd on the wide road to destruction, but you had mercy on my soul. Now, Lord, teach me. Teach me. Teach me how to think, please. And he says, come follow me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. And when we do... We'll promote love and unity among God's people and we'll be blessed and we'll be an asset to the body of Christ and no amount of opposition from the outside will change that. It is imperative that we understand that any issue, racial, political, medical, like, we're not going to let vaccines divide us, right? Right. <laughs> Racial, political, medical, economic, ecclesiastical, which means how you do church, any issue can become a real fault line which can split Christian fellowship have you felt recently like you noticed any fault lines in the church? Like, hmm. You ever see a fault line in a rock where you're like, that could snap in half. You're like, we got to get out of here. But you know, not the church, the rock, anyway. Any issue can become a fault line which can, can split Christian fellowship. And so I think Paul's beseeching us, don't be like the world. All it knows how to do is split along fault lines. Amen. You ever noticed that? I don't want to go off on this, but... Satan says love, 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 and everyone hates each other more. Satan says unity, 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 and everyone fights each other more. We, we see that, right? Yeah. I wish all those yard signs about love is love would work, don't you? They're not working. Oh, it's the Christian's fault. Satan's good. Right? Don't be like the world. Be something different, with a totally different way of thinking. 
so that we can demonstrate what truly pleases God, a unified, strong group of people with mature, resilient, productive relationships. And when we're living out of that reality, no matter what comes our way, we'll experience verse 21. You ever read verse 21 and you're just like, I want, that's what I want to be. Isn't that, isn't that a great verse? Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. You sit back and you think about how that would even look. Right? Some of you, you've walked that road. You've taken that precarious step that exposes you. I'm going I'm to do the right thing. And you've watched it overcome some evil. And the other side, you're like, oh, wow, that worked. Awesome. Right? Paul says, be that way. You can do it. That's who Jesus was and is. And look, you know, no illusions. What it looked like for Jesus to overcome evil with good was what? The cross. The Romans were like, that's the best you could do, man. I'll see you. I'll take your clothes. But he was overcoming evil, all evil, with the highest good a human being had ever done. And isn't it amazing? When a man stepped up and did the best thing, it destroyed all evil. There was a man who said, I'll do that. And when he did, it undid everything that Adam started. And undid it all. And Jesus knew that it would keep running on for a few hundred years at least. But that in the meantime, even while all that evil that was already defeated kept doing its work, there would be people who would hear the invitation to be that kind of people along with him. And even though they were not strong and amazing like him, they would overcome evil with good too. And so Paul could write that to normal Christians. Say, if you're allowing yourself to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and not to be conformed to this world, you won't be overcome by the world's evil and you won't have to try to fight it with you know, a bigger evil. You'll, you'll do the totally unexpected work like Jesus did of overcoming all the evil with good. It's just amazing. That's what we're invited into. Uh, you don't have to have the gift of prophecy to say that the next, it's October 7th, month might be really difficult and beyond, right? There might be things going on that can make us really angry or really scared or anxious or touchy. 
None of us know. That, right? You don't have to be a prognosticator to see that. And one of the things the Lord's given us is to say, remember who your people are. Don't let the world that refuses to acknowledge the kingship of Jesus tell you who your people are. Whether it says they're, it doesn't matter what side of the spectrum it says they're on. The truth is, there's a lot of things that are true about me, but the only adjective that really should describe me is that I'm a Christian man. I'm born again, right? Have you noticed how much energy is directed against that statement? But that's the world trying to conform us to itself. And and we're saying the world, but who's the energy? Who's directing it? Satan. You know, eat this and you'll never die. And the Holy Spirit, in his word, is just holding out a different way. And this is just one chapter. You guys, right? I mean, even just in the New Testament, there are hundreds of practical, daily direction for us, directions for us. We should never say, like, I just don't know what to do. If all I did was just seek God for the power to keep the basic, obvious commands of Scripture, I have plenty to do on Thursday, right? And maybe I don't know what to do about, like, the federal government. But God be praised, no one's asking me. I'm like, what are we going to do about the IRS? And the Lord's like, I don't know why you're worried about that. Because I'm just not going to let you have a crack at it. I'm not really worried at the IRS. I just picked something that none of us actually get mad about. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. Right? Praise the Lord. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And he says... One of your strengths is going to be to love the family of God and not forsake the gathering together of the saints and not check out on them and not stress them to make them want to leave. The body has many members. We're not all the same, right? And that's exactly how God designed it. That's exactly how God designed it. And I think that when we look out at the world and we see all of the isolation and animosity. You go, I, I know I don't want that. Yes, I want the church. Yes, I want the body of Christ. Yes, I want the family of God. And the Lord says, yeah, you're in. You're in. I'm going to read from Isaiah 55. I'm actually, uh, I'm done. Let's read this passage as the, as the team comes up to uh, maybe play a last song and pray. And I'm going to pray. Isaiah 55, verse 6. I think, uh, I think this passage goes right in line with what we were talking about. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your powerful words, Lord. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you speak clearly into our situation. You know what we need. You're patient with us, Lord. Thank you that you've provided everything. You haven't left us you know, out in the mountains without a pack, so to speak, Lord. We have what we need. You're going to bring us all the way home. And we just we want ears to hear. We want more. We want to use what we have, and we want to be given even more ears to hear, Lord. If you say that with the measure we use, it will be measured back to us, then we want to give you a huge ear to hear lots of your word, Lord. And we pray that you'd make us able to do these things in our world, Lord, in our lives. Help us where we're weak, Lord. Help us where we get tired or aggravated, frustrated, Lord. Don't, don't let us ever sink into hopelessness, Lord. And hope in your word. So stir up our hearts, Lord, and encourage us. Bless my brothers and sisters tomorrow, Lord, as they go out to their work, as they take care of their families. Give them words when they need them, Lord. Make them the kind of witness that they want to be when they leave in the morning. Help them to do that, Lord. Help us to do that everywhere we go. Give them someone that's ready to hear the gospel tomorrow, Lord. Give them someone that needs prayer. And give my, my friends here boldness to step out and to pray and to say what's true, Lord. Protect them from people that would you know, harm them, Lord. Protect their, their incomes and their families, Lord. Their minds, their hearts. Everyone that struggles with anxiety and fear, Lord. Strengthen them. And turn all of our hearts, Lord, to the moment that you said is approaching us fast, Lord, when Jesus Christ comes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.